bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. You guys, it's been another 800-day week. <laughs> I think I blacked out this week. I don't remember what happened. Um, probably because I've worked 22 days in a row. <gasps> um, yeah, but uh, you guys had lots of interesting things going on. Erica, you were on a panel. I was. How on was, stalking. How was that? It was... Very informative. I thought, um, I, I think there is so much more room to grow this issue uh, in terms of awareness. Shout out to the feminist twins who put this together, um, along with Octiva. Um, that's the Ottawa Coalition to End Violence Against Women. Yes, I got it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, my portion was to kind of kind of introduce the idea of um, street harassment, mm. um, the racial divisions within stalking, and cyber stalking and bullying. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, you know, like, I gave my experiences. We all gave our experiences. One of the interesting things, one of the interesting questions that the audience had was um, what makes men like this? <laughs> mm. Because most stalking perpetrators are men, yes. like ninety something percent. Like you can look up, look it up in stats, can. Um, and you know, if you think about like things like romantic comedies and stuff, I, something just clicked, and I just said um, when other people were talking about that kind of entertainment sort of influence, the pop culture influence, I said, yeah, because entertainment is basically the machinations and the thoughts and the ideas of white men. And that's it. So they like to, they like to reflect their own ideas of what we should like from them. Yeah, like, so um, the Olympics are ongoing, and I guess today is the last day, and uh, Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer, the, our ice dancing team, who won gold in both the team event and their individual event, um, they skated to Moulin Rouge. Mm-hmm. And I love Moulin Rouge, and I don't have a TV or a DVD player or, like, a, a thing on my computer to watch it. So I had kind of forgotten about the story. And so I started listening to the soundtrack again. And I realized that this movie is based on the fact that, like, a man is obsessed with a sex worker and basically emotionally coerces her into falling in love with him and running away together. I mean, obviously, she dies at the end, and it's sad. But uh, it's so toxic. And I was like, oh, this is deeply uncomfortable for me. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, as we always say, all of our favorite things are problematic. Yeah, they're all problematic. Like, And the thing is, like, I always hated Moulin Rouge, just like I always hated um, American Beauty. I thought they were sick fucking movies. American and Beauty I recently rewatched. And yeah. It's so disturbing. It is disturbing. It, I think it was known to be disturbing at the time, but there is still such a glorification of it as a film that people do lose the critical messaging, and I don't think there was... 
and the then space to have these kinds of conversations. And then we as women take these these things as cues yeah. as to how we should behave, should react, should think right. about men who consistently pursue us, even though we're like, dude, no. Yeah, and I think with American Beauty also. It's like who is cast and who is seen as desirable, mm-hmm. and then that narrative of who is who is stalked and who deserves to be stalked, and like that that you know shows that again you're you're desired and that it's like a, something you should be complimented by, which is a huge myth that people still and have. She about was in st- high school, for sure, but that's something people still think about street harassment. That like, well, you should be flat, like in, in the simplest form of like that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like you should be flattered, yeah, and that that also comes through in all the depictions of stalking. So that we're just like, oh well who this pretty girl is being fantasized about by this 40-year-old man and people aren't really reconciling like what that actually means and then when stalking victims who aren't also 16 years old and like absolutely like objectively stunning by like western beauty standards come out and say they've experienced stalking people are like oh yeah as if or you're just you just want attention or you're making this up or, or like all of the things the trashy awful things people say to women who do experience that in day-to-day life yeah and it's dehumanizing mm-hmm. absolutely it's absolutely dehumanizing for the sake of of acquiring power and position over women's bodies and uh i just for me i was further sort of um how should I say? I it kind of solidified my understanding of that connection between you know um, kind of caging and controlling women's bodies, um, which goes either way, and um, and how dehumanizing that is. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Amy, how was your week? It was fine. I spent my week in Hamilton for work. So one of the perks of my job is that I travel to different parts of the country to represent the members of the union that I work for. Cool. And you you saw Black Panther. I saw Black Panther. I'm going tomorrow. Uh, Have you not been yet? No, because I said, okay, because I'm doing the whole... You know, based on your Twitter, it's hard to tell. I know. You've been (laughs) pretending like you went. (laughs) You've been busted. I told, I told boyfriend it's time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, it is time. By the way, I was so he dropped me off and I was getting off like here, and I was getting out of the car, and these two white guys started passing by, and we were like, it was me, him, and his kid, and they looked at his kid, and they looked at me, and they looked back at his kid, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know you're racially confused right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, that's the big part of the fun eh? yeah like it was that, yeah. it was kind of fun yeah it was kind of fun because they were confused yeah. i could see it yeah so i was like so i said it's time it's yeah. time we go to a black movie during <laughs> black history month that's awesome. welcome well you won't be to wakanda you won't okay <laughs> sorry again you're pretending like you saw it very misleading <laughs> You're not wrong. I Wakanda know. forever. It's fucking yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you won't be disappointed. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, it's going to be great. I, I want to see it again. And, and I'll wait a little bit. And, but I like, during Black History Month, I'm like, this needs to happen. Yeah. Mm. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be all but he pulled out But he pulled out the movie times. So I was okay. like, nice. I was like, look at you. Yeah. Manning yeah. it up. Come on. <laughs> Aaron, when are you going to see? Sorry, Black I totally, I totally like hijacked you. Not Amy. at all. Oh my gosh, um, it's Black History Month. Hijack whatever you want. Woo! 
I've got a couple more days. To get I do. <laughs> I do. I've been thinking of trying to go this weekend. Um, it's more just whether or not I can handle it <laughs> mentally. <laughs> just like working so much and everything. So I just would sometimes just want to rest mm. and not see the world. But it's it's um, great escapism because mm. it doesn't. It, it's it more really just like is the, the effort of getting there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you want me to Uber you there? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. um, as you can tell, I've lost my voice. I <laughs> sound very sexy. Um, I was talking to my boyfriend on the phone last night, and I was uh, talking very low. We don't need to know this. And he was just <laughs> like, can you please not talk like that? Oh, no. <laughs> Making me a little uncomfortable. He's like, just talk in your regular voice. And last night, when it was worse, I was like, this is my regular voice right now. (laughs) (laughs) Keeping the romance alive, I see. I guess that's just not the way. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Oh, anyway, it's been another another week. And uh, let's get into it. This week in feminism, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in India. (laughs) He was there for a week-long trip that went from bad to worse. Dogged by bad press and speculation that the Prime Minister had been snubbed by the Indian government, on Thursday, Canadian officials were again on the back foot after it was revealed a Sikh extremist convicted of attempting to murder an Indian politician had been invited to dine with Mr. Trudeau at the Canada's High Commissioner's residence in New Delhi. The official invitation, which was later withdrawn, has sparked outrage in India, where the issue of Sikh separatism remains a highly charged and emotive topic. The demand for a separate nation of Khalistan is an issue that has little support among Sikhs in India. It does not enjoy unanimous support here in Canada either. The concerns were fair. Trudeau's appearance at a Sikh parade in Toronto last year with yellow and blue Khalistan flags in the background, um, along with posters of the leader of the Khalistani movement, was not looked upon kindly in India. Uh, The Trudeau family was criticized for their over-the-top Shirwanis and Kurta pajamas, banger sequences, overly choreographed family time, and overdoing the namastes. Was there really no advisor in our prime minister's office or the foreign affairs office who said before this trip, meet Prime Minister Modi first, go easy on the clothes, wrap up the visit in three days, be prepared to deal with the separatist issue, Earlier in the month, an expert told Global News, quote, there is no question that the whole Khalistan question will overshadow this trip. Then, an unnamed government official told the news outlet that it was not expected to be a big issue. If this unnamed government official had had a chance to counsel Trudeau, nope. Omar Aziz, if he had been given a chance to counsel Mr. Trudeau, who is a former advisor at the Department of Global Affairs in the Liberal government, said that he would have told the Prime Minister, quote, it's going to come up and you need to make sure you know what you're going to say. So what are your thoughts on this trip, ladies? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been secondhand embarrassment all week just following this. Um, I think the two issues um, that the lack of sensitivity or awareness or response around the Sikhs the Sikh separatism um, extremism issue go hand in hand with the depiction issue of like, you know, the dress and the fanfare. Um, 
because it just shows how shallow this government has been in terms of like what they think international engagement means and how for, how is it to be meaningful and it looks like beyond purchasing like over the top outfits like you know made for like wedding ceremonies they hadn't really like thought much further to what this trip would entail and to not have set up their meeting with the prime minister of india like makes n before arriving makes absolutely no sense it seems like it was an afterthought that modi would even meet with them on the third day like that whole thing was also really peculiar i love this story <laughs> i love it so much and you know why it has all it's so extra i love it <laughs> i love i love the fact that you know I feel like he he got exposed. Mm. I feel like Trudeau got exposed. I've been saying for a long time that, you know, his personal brand's really good, but his brand, his government brand is shit. And now his personal brand is going down in flames because apparently nobody at PMO knows how to do, like, any sort of respectable... Um, it, it's like you know what, I know PMOs run by a bunch of white people because this is exactly how white people behave when they try to look like they're down with your culture mm -hmm. is that they go over the top and they, they put on everything that they think your culture is and then they end up just making a caricature of mm -hmm. your culture. Mm -hmm. and, it, and what he did is he insulted a whole like a whole country and a whole diaspora with that sort of, of like with that approach. I mean, when like the pictures were cringy to me. Yeah. And insofar as I said on my, um, on Facebook and Twitter, I said, Trudeau looks like he would show up at a black history month gala in a do-rag mm -hmm. <laughs> because that's what he thinks blackness is. <laughs> And, mm -hmm. and white people do this all the time. Liberal white people especially do this all the time. Is that they think they know, they, they pick up um, caricatures and, and pieces of stereotypes from the media mm -hmm. about how we are, and then they dress up in those stereotypes that thinks it's okay. Majority in a Western country. I just, I just don't. Usually these like big foreign trips have a larger purpose yes. to announce some sort of big policy yeah. or partnership. And this was just, I mean, I say just as if like it's thrown in a, this type of money around, but it's like a $1 billion trade agreement, which is not well, apparently revolutionary. Apparently during Cretchen's visit, he got $5 billion deals exactly. in, so it's in $2,003, which is like... Yeah, so like it this was. isn't yeah. like earth shattering. Yeah, it's right. not groundbreaking. Yeah. It's nothing special. Absolutely. So what was the purpose of the trip otherwise? Like it's a week. The other detail that's that I long. Yeah, the other you detail. Gotta wrap I that up in three days. Yeah, the detail I really enjoyed was that they were PMO was referring to it as a state visit, which it was not what you call it when the prime minister goes. Play. It's what you call that a state visit is what the governor general. Yeah, we're the head of the state. the head of state, but he's he's not that. And and those are the kinds of like you know, go and meet people and just like show face, but not it's but like yeah, he's the PM. It should be a diplomatic visit with like actual meetings and <laughs> like a work to do. I mean, Andrew Shear wasn't wrong when he wished the prime minister well on his family vacation. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And that's, yeah. Yeah. Andrew Shear not being wrong is, is noteworthy. <laughs>
but I'm interested in the point that you brought up, Erica, is that, like, where are the people of color advising him? Ah! Listen, Trudeau talks a good game. He's full of shit. Because his entire, I can guarantee that most of his staff are white and male. The ones who have decision and influence. Exactly. Speaking of which, I saw Actually, that... Actually, there are a few women, but they are white. They're always white. And the thing is, is that it's, it's, it's exactly like Scott Bryson, the head of Treasury Board, who tweeted out his gender equality meeting, and it was all men. And I'm just like, where... This government is full of shit. Where are... If they are so interested in diversity, why don't they start in their own backyard? That's my question. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, when you have former liberals, like staffers who were advising, um, you know, at Global Affairs saying that they left because of what the climate was like, and, and that's the, the um, Twitter thread from uh, former staffer Omar Aziz is like, I was there, I was giving advice like this, it was falling on deaf ears, and essentially I left because it, it was, I was, it didn't feel like I was being effective or that I was like, listen was to for me to be there. Um, yeah. And I think that's really telling because um, they're not creating an environment where people want to stay or but feel Trude respected. Like that's like, that's pretty damning. But Trudeau doesn't put anybody but white men in positions of power. I mean, he does the, you know, he, he really does do the window dressing very well. And, um, you know, I, I, I really don't trust this liberal government when it comes to some of the shit they're saying about feminism, about inclusion, about gender equality, about diversity, even about anti-black racism. I don't believe you because in your backyard, you're a hypocrite. It's very, they're very hypocritical mm -hmm. on these issues. Mm -hmm. I want to see what this budget, which is coming out on Tuesday, I believe. Oh, yeah, we'll be talking about this next week. Yeah, for, for sure. For sure. I want to see what this budget Should is get going into budget to... budget lockup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, used to, I used to volunteer in budget lockup. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, With all the accountants. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I would like to see what is in this budget because, A, y I want to see where your money goes, and B... I would really like to... I think what happened was that Trudeau put made half of his cabinet women, but they weren't given positions of real power. Yes, we talked about that. Yeah, we've times. talked about this. Yeah, I mean, but I think yeah. it's, it's just surprising that the women have overshadowed the men in his cabinet. I really do. Look at... Okay, so look at um, our finance minister... He turned out to be horrible in terms of optics. Right? I don't know. I mean, yeah. in terms of his own personal yeah. conflicts I'm, of interest and ethics. I'm talking about his performance. Okay. All around. Fair enough. Okay? But, but they still haven't even warned that. Like, they've kind of just moved on from it. Have they? Maybe they, they, they have, have, they but have, have. Yes, okay, fair enough. Yeah. They have, and they haven't owned it, and there hasn't been a shuffle. Yeah, or but like, don't think that that... Yeah. I think what happens with this government is they do little things that, that, start, that start accumulating. Well, I think, like, in Morneau's case, like, he's... I don't think any limits were placed on him. And then you look at, like, the like Minister of Justice, 
Wilson-Raybould, who I don't think she's been given a lot of latitude to do anything and is now just, like, responsible for crisis response whenever any issues touch on Indigenous issues. That's right. And, like, I haven't seen any, like, real proactive, like, legislating efforts come out of her office. And um, I haven't seen much from the Minister of Immigration either, right? In well, terms that's a whole other messy piece, too. It's like, again, getting, I mean, pull, he, getting pulled out to do damage control when situations exactly. hit his community. And there's like, oh, deal with the Somali like, community yeah. on this narrow Yeah, it's, it's like yeah. he's farming them out yeah. to take care of their respective communities, yeah. which yeah. is so steeped in slavery. I can't even tell you. You know, that's the way that plantation owners used to control the slaves is I that they would send out one of their own to to wrestle them up and to take care of them and to and to and to you know discipline them the mm -hmm. overseer mm -hmm. you know so i i find this sort of i find that troubling with yeah, this absolute, government absolutely it is and i think it's i mean so i just want to like make clear that it's not about like represent it's like the, the point is representation matters because it affects substantive policy issues and like in all in all of those cases, whether it's immigration or like justice reform, or certainly this trip to India, which has like now led them down this like weird path of having to like make statements about a united India and speak out of it, like they, you know it it's actually affecting policy, yeah. not having those people at the table. That's right. Um, and but it's, we're it's just quite harmful. What we were yeah. just talking last week about economists, female economists, and the lack of female economists and how that affects policy mm -hmm. and informing policy. So this is not just about numbers. It's about being able to function in a multi-ethnic, multi-dimensional, multi-representational world now. Like, it matters now is my point. All right, let's move on. <laughs> uh, this past, so it's budget season. The federal budget comes out the day this podcast is released, and we'll be talking about it in our next episode, 100%. So each of the provinces will be releasing their budgets, if they haven't already, for this upcoming fiscal year. Um, and British Columbia released their first budget under their new, new democratic government. Uh, there are two things I want to talk about here. Uh, the first <coughs> is that the day before the budget, it's usually tradition for the finance minister to do a big photo op with the media and buy a new pair of shoes or do something about shoes as a way to signal what is going to be in the budget. So previously, some ministers had bought new shoes, some had gotten sneakers, some had gotten shoes resold, and that type of nonsense. Uh, in B.C., this year, uh, Finance Minister Carol James, who I'd like to point out is not the first female finance minister in British Columbia, um, did not buy into this tradition, and instead she went to read to children at a local daycare. Uh, the next day, she presented the budget with the following notable items. A new child care program that makes care effectively free for some low-income families, more specifically those who earn less than $45,000, and offers modest subsidies for others based on income. They flagged $6.2 billion over 10 years to create 33,700 affordable housing units. Um, they also identified that Indigenous languages in the province are under threat and points out that British Columbia is home to 60% of First Nations languages in Canada. So to support their pres preservation and revitalization, this budget included $50 million uh, for programs. 
they also identified $1.5 billion in healthcare-related spending. Um, initiatives include things like care for seniors, such as increased hours of residential care and money to help residents find a family doctor. Um, and finally, uh, $1.6 billion over three years to build and maintain affordable rental housing, as well as boosts for post-secondary campus housing and housing for women and children fleeing domestic violence. Are we doing good news today? This good is, news. Yeah, damn. Good news. Um, so the, the new child care program um, will help 86,000 families get the child care benefit. 50,000 families will get reduced fees, and approximately 27,000 low-income families will get both and virtually eliminate their daycare fees by 2021. Wow. That's amazing. It's so cool. Um, this is a very, very intersectional budget. You know, it deals with low income. Um, it deals with seniors. It deals with indigenous people. It deals with women um, and other marginalized people. You know, gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. Healthcare. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. This is like yeah extremely impressive um i haven't read too much about what the like folks respond like critical responses to this budget is but on its face it seems really great i know the federal government is planning to have gender be a big theme of their budget so that's something to keep an eye out and now that we i'm glad that the bc budget came first we can like obviously the issues are different um mm -hmm. that they're covering but it does give you a sense of like how imaginative they can be and what you can kind of hold them to. Well, it does give you um, now a baseline to yeah. work with. Yeah. And um, I'm, I, I don't know about this federal budget. Honestly. <laughs> I don't know what to expect personally um, in the sense that I think I, 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 I feel as though if we're not looking dynamically and sort of holistically at issues, then we're really not doing like real, the real work that needs to be done to mitigate them, at least. I, I, I'm, I'm impressed with BC's budget, actually. I only took a peek at it. Mm -hmm. um, and if you want to know what, what intersectional an intersectional budget looks like, it would be probably more towards this budget. Mm -hmm. um, but provincial budgets really don't inform federal budgets. No, not at all. But yeah. it shows you it like how creative and inventive. And also, yeah, the federal government does have some degree of responsibility to look at other provinces and get people to at least a similar like level and it provinces are showing an appetite for a particular exactly. policy area and there's some way that the federal government can shore that up through you know whatever but just just knowing the group that works with provincial government government yeah. <laughs> provincial budgets in the department of finance it's they're very siloed mm -hmm. so they're not even though there is operational um, opportunity to do so. Mm -hmm. The mentality isn't there mm -hmm. to um, look at provincial budgets and say, you know what, I, I wonder what it is they, that we can take from this. Mm -hmm. Or maybe even having provincial representatives 
be in consistent contact with them and stuff like that. They don't take that approach operationally. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to me, it's a missed opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's a huge missed missed opportunity because we could actually learn from each other. And I find that when it comes to the feds and the way the public service works in these silos, making these dynamic, holistic sort of decisions is not operationally um, available because even though these two people, these two groups may sit side by side, they're not used to working together Mm -hmm. and cross-pollinating. Yeah. So... What, I mean, you politi- look like you were going to no, say no, something. I was going to say, like, politically, it would just be more effective for the federal government to, like, almost claim provincial successes as their own by adding a little bit of money towards one direction. Like, if I were the federal government, be like, here's something towards, whether it's health care or child care, through some sort of federal benefit or some sort of transfer, mm-hmm. but then claim the, like, BC successes as, like, part and parcel of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I don't Girl, know. Girl, the way we... I, I swear all three of us could, like... I don't know. ...advise this government <laughs> just a little bit better. <laughs> we should... Honestly, PMO should be us. Yeah. We'd be like... We, we'd run the it fuck out so of decreed. them. Eric we really like, would be like, bitch, no. Yeah, I know. I'd be like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? What is this? Are you... I, I would make sure that Sophie does not turn up to Africa in Wakanda gear. Oh okay? My all right. Oh my God. All right. But when you have yeah. like people like Jessica Mulrooney like advising you, what the fuck do you expect? I'm trying to think timing wise. They still have one more budget before. Yes. Yeah. So ah, what not... you're saying is this is the penultimate budget yeah. before yeah. I don't election. Know. It's either going to so... be not so bold um, and like a bit right. more conservative, and then they're bold on the next one right. because they don't have to follow through on anything. Exactly. But uh, so you know, there's no guarantee that it's going to be yeah. necessarily. The... Well, if they had any sense, which I don't know that they do in PMO, uh, judging from our first story, but they would plant the seeds. They did mm. plant the seeds with gender with gender based budgeting though. Yeah, last and they're, and they're year. saying and they're saying again that it's gonna be a big theme of this budget. But I you know, I'm concerned that that's like just lip service, but hopefully it's not and you know, yeah. We'll see. <laughs> but I'll be looking at this real hard now <laughs> because I don't trust this government on their little gender based their their feminism and the blah blah blah. That's it. We'll I don't trust them. We'll see. I know. Exactly. We'll see. But I'm I'm happy to be wrong. Did uh, any of you watch uh, the, I mean, probably not, uh, the speech that Jagmeet Singh gave last weekend at the NDP convention? You know, you know. No. Okay, no, you because know what? A lot of people probably did that are listening to this. How dare you nerd shame them? I it's no, I just it's just I just don't watch the internet. That's it's fair. Just, it's, That's fair. It's, it's just that after the rules got like 15 20 minutes of rules and roll and I was just like, no. I think my rent that just turned is about convention, so I'll, yeah, okay, I'll spare good. you my rant on that. <laughs> yeah. But I will say that she like they just turned on, me off with that. Yeah, yeah, all conventions are like that. But anyway, the mm. it, it Jagmeet's speech like really shows the dividing. Like I think he's like really taken a an, a step on at least some of the big things around infrastructure and healthcare um, that are much bolder than the liberals have been um, in a really neat way. And so I think maybe it, it's good to keep that in mind, like in terms of what informs like 
liberal policy direction if we're, we are looking to the next election. Oh, congratulations to him, too, actually. Oh, didn't yeah. I, I, oh, he got married. Yeah, he got tied, married. Tied the knot. Yeah. Woo-woo. Anyway, back to that. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to shout out. That's fair. Yeah. More good, yeah, more I good news, I guess, well, for someone. I don't know. know. It was... It was I liked it. I, I like the pictures. Yeah, yeah. I didn't look at them because I don't care that he got married. Like, I know. <laughs> I know. I would just. I know. Aaron. I would just love for <laughs> the one single, like, for someone to be a single elected politician that isn't fucking Patrick Brown, because he's making single people look super bad, and it like well, personally offends me. Well, he makes like. <laughs> okay, now we're going into an right. aside. See, we can't do good news. We need something to shit no, on. No, no, no. We're we're totally op-ed people. We're not <laughs> because we we meand like I'm trying to cut down on the meandering. I really am. But sometimes <laughs> anyway, um speaking of single people, yeah. voters don't tr- they don't no, get I, single people over the age of like so 35. Oh, good. I have so, some time left. Y- well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't. But, I don't. <laughs> but, like, they just don't get it. Yeah. And, you know, Patrick Brown just solidified oh, that. Yeah, that's what pisses yeah. me off. And I think, like, part of the. I, I mean, I don't know what's going on in Drag Meets life. I don't know him like that. But, like, probably I think that's part of the timing of his wedding was that, you know, there's an election coming up and got to look the part. I mean,. And I'm not saying that makes their le- relationship any less legitimate. Like, but you have to formalize her role. Yeah, exactly. And I think that definitely is part of part of the thinking. And it's it's just unfortunate that we can't accept that people can you know single and have different types of relationships that aren't you know traditional marriage. Like that makes me really sad. I'd love to see a politician in a poly triad. <laughs> right. That would never happen. <laughs> would Could ne- you imagine? Would never happen. I don't know. And then fucking Kevin Spacey went and ruined it all. We were bi- getting people there with House of Cards and the storyline of their open marriage. And then he went and fucked it all up by being a dirtbag in real life. Well, I, I'm looking at Jagmeet Singh's Instagram and I'm wondering where the Instagram story is about this wedding. Yeah, it's been really DL. I don't understand. Here's the thing that baffled me. It was just just like totally just like me personally being upset about about something. I was so tired just having been a delegate at NDP convention last weekend and then having to like, I don't know, do a job this week. I don't know how he managed to get married after that. Because he didn't (laughs) have to do any work. He just went there and gave a speech. Uh, Glad-handed a bit. He DJed the social, okay? And who is he, Mayor Gregor? Like, <laughs> there were anyway, whatever. I guess my point is, is like, what, how, why? Because he didn't have to hustle for any yeah. of the hard stuff, I suppose. Yeah, oh, I mean, again, we can talk about what who we? actually did the hustling at NDP convention. <laughs> so, so he gave this speech that was it was really good. You should definitely all watch it. Okay, it was a great speech. I was really pissed at him all weekend for all manner of other things, um, but great speech. Okay, here's what pisses me off about Jagmeet Singh. Okay, thank you. I know this was not on the docket, but this is what pisses me off. Okay. I need to get this out. Remember when she just said she was going to cut down on her meandering? No, I know. (laughs) I know. I'm sorry. Whatever, you're in it But I feel like like this needs to be said. Um, On the record. My hope for Jagmeet Singh was to galvanize us. 
And when I say us, I mean those of us who come from immigrant backgrounds, who were born, who grew up in Canada, who are Canadian, who now, like, because we're really the first huge wave of non-white yes. um, sort of offspring of non-white immigration, right? There are a lot of us, and we can be galvanized, and we don't have the same sort, we don't look at the issues the, si the same way as our parents, and we don't look as, at issues the same way as um, as white kids our age, right? Or white people our age who um, have grown up for generations in this country, I feel. I feel like there is a, a, a political group there that's not being served. Mm -hmm. I had hoped that Jagmeet Singh would speak to those issues. Yes, he has. He's spoken about carding, carding which I loved. He's spoken about um, gender-based violence. He's yeah. spoken about different things. But I would like to see him on a more consistent basis and really pushing those messages. I feel like he's still being tepid and that bothers me. I think if you watch this speech, you're going to have you're going to get the reaction you want from it. And I think it's a taste of what a campaign, a federal campaign run by Jagmeet would, would look like. But I want him to start campaigning no, that no, shit and he, now. And, and, he, you know? and he will. He has to get married first so people will take him seriously. Fair and enough. Then, and then he'll do it. Um, but, and, and, and I don't think you're wrong. He, he needs to start sooner rather than later. Yeah, because he's not um, an MP. We yeah. don't see him. But I, all the this, like, am amazing kind of opening video that talked about his upbringing and like talked about like getting teased and bullied and some tensions in his home life and then like goes into how he became exactly but Thank it's like you. rooted in actually like some legitimate like struggle and like you know we're right like a real coming to something and this is the perfect time for who is speaking from that place but in terms of policy, he talks about anti-black racism. He talks about carding. talks about free tuition. Like, he didn't talk about free tuition in his speech, but it was passed as com at convention as a policy point. Uh, he talks about decriminalizing all drugs, which is a policy point that passed at convention as well. Um, talks about making the internet part of, like, public infrastructure and just fucking owning it and that we should own more public infrastructure and, like, like and, and nationalize a lot more than we have been. Um, and talks about free dental care and eye care and like expanding healthcare um, in like more more precise terms than I think I've ever heard him speak. Um, goes off the script. No, like like he ha he has a script at certain points, but he's like walking around, like not really using a teleprompter. And then he just like throws this banger of a song on at the end and is like, but that's what like, makes so perfect. That's what makes him, um, I think, very well placed for that space is mm -hmm. because a lot of us, and I, I, you know, whenever I, I go where, well, wherever I go sometimes, like wherever I go sometimes, that makes <laughs> sense. Um, <laughs> I think, and you know, it's funny because I find that I connect with those Canadians, us really easily, mm -hmm. no matter what race we are, mm -hmm. we all have, similar sort of 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 you know experiences 
I think uh, it's interesting how othering brings people together. It like does. Being othered, like, it does. Certain, but we yeah. don't, we, it's so funny because when the Canadian media talks about, um, which I'll go into in, in our last piece, um, when, the, when the media gets into talking about people of color, we're all immigrants, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but we're not. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of us who are, have come from that first wave or of non-white Where our parents immigrated. Exactly. There are a lot of us, and a lot of us grew up here, and now we pay taxes and vote. Mm-hmm. So I really do think that there's, there, there is an untouched cohort there that a lot of politicians don't realize is there, but I get the sense that Jagmeet Singh does. Mm-hmm. I just want him to kind of step it up. Yeah, absolutely. I want to see a je- I want to see a weekly address or something. I think he's working on being more polished. Like when I heard that speech, I was surprised because I I do get the sense that he's not all like from what I've other speeches that I've heard. Like he's not he doesn't he, he doesn't always have it together. He's not as he doesn't have the precise language. Um, sometimes I hear him scrumming and he speaks in platitudes that I find irksome. Um, but I think he's starting to like work and hone that down. And that's probably what they're waiting to do, like almost a reveal of sorts. Um, but from what I saw, and if anyone wants to check it out, I think it gives you a sense of where things are going and you should all definitely press the NDP and press Jagmeet on that um, so that they keep left in that way. Yeah. I, I, I just want to see somebody like, like take out Trudeau on the social issues yeah. mm-hmm. because I th- I'm, I'm sick of Trudeau right now, to be honest. I'm just sick of the hypocrisy and I'm sick of the bullshit and the, the, platit- the platitudinal ways in which he addresses these things. So as we know, the poverty rate amongst black Americans is 22%, and that is higher than the American average of 13%. But black people make up only 9 million of the 41 million poor Americans. The Kaiser Family Foundation, a nonprofit focused on health care, found that in only five states, states for which it had data and the District of Columbia, there were more black poor people than white. Black Americans are more likely to be recipients of means-tested welfare programs like Medicaid or housing assistance at 41% participation in one or more programs in 2012, which is about twice the national average, which suggests that black people make up about 26% of all recipients. Uh, News coverage suggests that the percentage of that is much higher. Travis Dixon at the University of Illinois analyze a random sample of television, print, and online news stories over 2015 and 2016 and found that 59% of poor people discussed or depicted in them were black. White families, by contrast, accounted for only 17% of poor people shown, though they constitute 66% of the poor population. The bias isn't limited to right-leaning news sources. In the news coverage, Mr. Dixon looked at In the news coverage Mr. Dixon looked at, CNN depicted seven poor families, all of which were black. And all five of the poor families depicted in Dixon's sample of the New York Times coverage were black. Martin Gilens, a politics professor at Yale, found that in a survey in 1994, 55% of Americans thought that all poor Americans were black, and only 24% thought the reverse. 
the Sentencing Project, an advocacy group for criminal justice reform, has found a similar pattern regarding violent crime. Crimes perpetrated by African Americans were disproportionately likely to be covered on television, especially if they involved a white victim. While only 10% of victims in crime, crime reports were whites who had been victimized by blacks, these crimes made up 42% of cases televised by local news. Popular perceptions of crime reflect the coverage bias. A survey from 2002 found that respondents estimated 40% of people who commit violent crimes are black, and surveys showed that the, proportion to, the actual proportion to be 29%. And white Americans, who more strongly associated crime with black Americans, were more likely to be, support punitive criminal justice policies, including the death sentence and the three strikes laws. Well... This is crazy. I'm, I 100% believe it, and I'm not surprised. Like, I'm not surprised that there is a bias against black people and the representation of poverty and crime. But, like, the statistics are shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the conclusions definitely don't baffle me, but the rates are a lot yes. higher than one would expect. Um, I think what's really telling um, is... You know, it kind of goes into the narrative from the last election that a lot of, you know, poor white folk feel like they've been neglected and, like, left out of government services and political conversations. And the truth of the matter is they have, but also in part because of our fixation with looking at poor black and, criminali- and uh, like, criminalizing black like, or thinking about them as being the sole um, issues around, like, the center of poverty and criminal criminality issues and then and we are by virtue of that ignoring poor white people mm-hmm. um and yeah like that's quite harmful like when white people think that they are supporting this myth or like you know that it's to their benefit of white people that they are like looking so favorably on their own kind they're actually harming poor white people does that make sense uh, yeah i know yeah. what you're saying I mean, like yeah. having a hard time no, getting there. What you're it's saying, almost like inverting the data to say like what you're what, saying by, by like, ignoring by white, by white people, like poor white people thinking that black people are more worse off than them. Yeah. They're harming themselves because they're not supporting policies that also help lift them out of criminality and poverty themselves. Yeah, and they're in, and they're allowing everybody else to ignore them by virtue of that. Well, that's an interesting spin. <laughs> it's true though but like if you think about it, like um voting populations in the south who are predominantly white and poor they are largely republican and conservative and they don't support health care they don't support welfare programs they think that it's for quote-unquote those people who are black who are quote-unquote lazy and fulfill all of these stereotypes which is untrue but the republican party has been has been serving up those stereotypes for generations yes so i mean the media is definitely complicit i i think like black people always talk about this if you've if you've been around black people and like black communities which i know a lot of listeners have not um uh you a lot of these things that are coming out now with data to support we always knew because we can see ourselves and we can see how we're portrayed so when you look at um 
uh, what was the name? The, the welfare queen. For example, black and welfare has been inextricably linked for generations. Mm-hmm. When even, <laughs> even Chris Rock did a bit in his like old, old stand up where, you know, black people live in like 10 places. <laughs> But the rest of broke, the rest of the broke people, are um, poor, white, eating mayonnaise sandwiches. You know, listening to their John Cougar Mellencamp record. You know, <laughs> like yeah. And and the thing is, that sounds like my hell. <laughs> I know. He was trying to make it sound like hell. Um, so even when you look at, I, I think what what came across my feed this week is the myth of the absent black father. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of government intervention that has perpetuated and sold that myth. I think if I were as cynical as I may be, I would think that that myth was perpetuated to further democratic policies for public housing and so on and so forth and rounding up black people. But anyway, I digress. Um, so... I think it's more sinister than The Economist put it. The Economist is kind of like, oh, maybe it's by accident. I'm like, no, this is on purpose. It doesn't get perpetuated generation after generation by accident. It is actually the fact that the people who make these decisions of what to air, what to show, are actually perpetuating this myth, and so are Democrats and Republicans. Democrats do it in a way where let's help the poor black folk. Um, Look what we've done in the past. We must help the poor black folk. And Republicans are more like, oh, we'll we'll demonize Mm -hmm. black people. Yeah, it's just confirmation bias. It is confirmation bias, exactly. But they set up the bias and then continually confirm it. Mm -hmm. If we compare it to indigenous people and the way they're portrayed, I mean, we had two... I mean, Canada basically has... This entire country needs a fucking frontal lobotomy, in my opinion, because we just had, you know, two verdicts of two white people who in my opinion, murdered to indigenous people and they were let off because it's okay. And that, the way we talked about this in an earlier episode about the headline of Tina Fontaine's um, trial and how that colored perception. You want to know how racism is perpetuated? This is how it's perpetuated, partially. And it's all part of that of a white supremacist structure. I don't even know what else to talk mm-hmm. to say about that. I mean, the origin of all of these myths or, or sto- like the stories about poverty. I mean, it's no, it's not because people are concerned with poverty itself. It's the origin is white people always saw that even poor white people always saw themselves better than poor black people. They weren't enslaved and they had these rights. And it's, I mean, it's the basis of the suffer like suffragist movement. Well, why why don't we have voting rights as white women? When uh, you know we're not the same as black people, we don't. They don't have voting rights. That's fine. They cannot have voting rights. I'm glad you brought this up, Amy. But we want you know. But but like right, it's like it's all. There's always been this. We're not as bad as them. We're not them. So we deserve something, and so we'll we'll never be poor because the true poor class is the is like 
well, the, the enslaved class at one point and then the, you yeah. know, s segregated class and whatever else. But that's what, that has been the playbook since. And I'm not going to say it's Democrat or Republican, although the Republicans have actually, got, like, st like, structuralized it into, into the, um, uh, the Southern strategy, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and who is it? Lee Atwater really formalized it, right? In terms of you tell white people, poor white people, that they're better than the poor black people or the poor Mexican or whatever, mm -hmm. poor Latino. And, um, and, you know, they have an inherent feeling of, of superiority and therefore you can always use the carrot for them. That's their mm -hmm. carrot. Mm -hmm. So as soon as, so that's why the Republicans codify their messages to basically tell poor white people, well, you're white, so you're okay. You're better off. You're doing great. The you're American doing great, sweetie. Made for you. <laughs> you're going to be fine. Yeah, and you'll be fine. And the only way you won't be fine is if we elect Democrats who keep putting people of color ahead of you and if everything you're losing is just because they're gaining. Exactly. And then it's like that zero exactly. sum game. Exactly. They yeah. put it in a zero sum game because, and I find that the way that diversity is talked about here and in the States is another zero sum game. Well, a white guy won't get in because he sucks <laughs> and he's lazy as fuck. You know? Like, isn't that who we want to get rid of? No, apparently not. <laughs> Anyway, so I'm coming back to this. I'm not surprised. I'm not even surprised at the statistics. I think in black communities, we always knew. But it's nice that it's formalized now. It's data. Mm -hmm. So now when people ask you for evidence, there you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why I'm not here for propping up a media industry that has done this. Mm -hmm. they, and it's not only us they've done it to. They've done it to Latinos. They've done it to the indigenous. Oh, they're terrible with the with indigenous people here and the way they're portrayed. It's it's obscene. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. No, the stories you hear like the stories that are get told and the depictions that accompany them and you know, who's telling the story, all of that. Like it's the decision makers about. matter. Yeah. yeah. Jesse Brown talked about this um, in relation to the Colton Bushi trial and the Tina Fontaine trial and the media coverage in one of his episodes of Candleland Shortcuts and said that um, one of the Tina Fontaine Headlines said something about how she had drugs and or alcohol in her system when she was found. Um, her body was found instead of um, what's his face basically admitting that he had dumped her in the river. Mm -hmm. Like that was the head. Like her. Yeah, we did this toxicology. On one of our episodes. Yeah, yeah. Her toxicology was the yeah. the focus. Yeah, and fulfilling a yeah. stereotype of yeah. indigenous people instead of his admission of guilt. Yeah, yeah, and you'd think that an admission of guilt would or at least a, a a very material piece driving that narrative would really take precedence but no apparently um it's more important to damage the reputation of a dead indigenous girl and she's a girl yeah you well, know I think, yeah and the thing that irked me is like both of those things were not at all at that point established in the case they were just being introduced 
the toxicology report was indeterminative. And as we talked about on our pod when we also covered it, like there were many other things in that case that were far more shocking. Yes, one, the, the fact that they had a recorded confession of him, but also the fact that she had interacted with different government agencies and like asked for help or mm-hmm. was known while she was missing and no one followed up with her, yeah. that she was in care and like of the state at the time and was in contact days before she was killed but is shocking but, but what, yeah sorry i, I know i just want to add one other piece about the tina fontaine thing like it like yes there's her her poverty and her interactions with the system but i feel like we've all we're also not talking about not that this uh, like how people on the like people like raymond cormier cormier get to where they are as well without any sort of like intervention or like prevention on their movement their behavior and their interactions agreed and because we don't have a prop i don't think we have a proper media establishment um so they can take their you know pitch for money and shove it wherever um because at the end of the day we are missing because the media establishment is so narrow-minded and so bigoted, we are missing true checks and balances on these government institutions. And that's not the way democracy is supposed to work. We need a robust media, a robust journal, like re- robust journalism to hold these, these government institutions and the actors within them accountable. And we're not, so they're not accountable. And now we're moving on to rent and receipts. This is where we each bring a story to share with the others. Amy, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, Okay, so I'm kind of bringing my story from like a personal, I've seen it with my own two eyes perspective and kind of also want to get folks' opinion, you guys' opinion on um, a partisan experience from last weekend's NDP convention. So um, I, a party member, attended a convention, sort of was on the fence about going. Um, but was really motivated by um, a lot of these sort of sub-splinter, not, I shouldn't even say splinter groups, like outside activist groups that were trying to, like, get involved in pushing different resolutions and policies on the floor of convention. So it's a policy convention, meaning that there is room and space for debate, ideally, uh, of different policy points, and everyone's endeavor, uh, you know, no matter where they're coming from, is to push the party in different uh, directions on certain policy issues. So there's um, a couple uh, organizations like Courage and the Ginger Group, which are like NDP or outside NDP, like leftist activist circles that brought motions to the floor. One of which was about Palestine um, and addressing um, different, um, or taking different ways to address um, and re- re- redo entirely the very old and archaic um, policy the NDP currently has on the conflict. And so that motion, um, folks had been working on it for months, in fact, like created it with a lot of consultation using language from Amnesty and Oxfam and different organizations. It was brought together by independent Jewish voices um, and kind of canvassed around to different writing associations, um, different organizations signed on to it and had a lot of support from uh, the membership and again, experts in that, in that field. And they even went so far as to publish the resolution in advance of convention on its own website, like 
and uh, like lobbying for support for this one resolution. Um, but for those who've ever attended policy conventions or for those who haven't, know that it's a bit of a stifled and kind of, um, you know, the party, the institution that is the party, um, is still very concerned with its brand. And I think all parties don't want to give over control um, to the membership in any like meaningful way, um, or they're afraid of that. And certainly Palestine as an issue has always been really difficult for um, the NDP. I think a lot of us would like to think the NDP is a lot more progressive, um, but it, when it comes to pro denouncing the expansion of settlements, um, addressing um, the blockade on Gaza, and, um, you know, and, and then uh, also applying whether it's economic sanctions or um, a ban and sanctions um, approach, um, a BDS approach to Israel, the NDP is extremely tepid and tries to avoid it. They believe it's an unelectable, it's an issue that if they ran on would like severely hinder their chances. Anyway, fast forward to showing up at convention um, and there's the party institution saying they're gonna make sure that this doesn't make it to the floor at any cost and activists such as myself waking up at five in the morning on the start of convention to go to the Shaw Center from the moment its doors open to line up in line to get to the podiums for to the li uh, mic lineup so that we could debate the prioritization of the motion. So at NDP convention, motions are submitted in advance. Someone from the party who was selected through this very secret backroom process reviews all the party resolutions and prioritizes them. Um, and ours was like next to dead last. Um, and prioritized ahead of ours at the very top was a resolution that was actually quite problematic about the conflict. Um, and anyway, so that's showing up, getting together with all these activists, lining up in the mics, essentially like getting into the convention center before anyone else, and then uh, being met with just swaths of people who had no interest in the resolution, just showing up saying, if you hear the word Palestine, vote no, holding spots in line to give them over for some NDP um, caucus members so that they could speak against the resolution and essentially just being thwarted at every turn on this debate. Ultimately, what happened was we lost the prioritization of that resolution. Um, we, uh, no, none of the resolutions on foreign policy were reprioritized, meaning that when they went to the convention floor, they were just debated as is um, in the order that the party had decided was worthwhile. Um, and then there was a peaceful protest on the floor convention against the resolution that went forward and a lot of, um, yeah, preventing even fr that discussion from happening. So, um, and to Erica's earlier point in this pod about the convention being all about rules, going through the rules, convention is absolutely terrible for that. People, it's just every other word is a point of order, point of privilege. People don't know how to use Robert's <laughs> rules or they try to use it to quash debate. And ultimately, there is no meaningful debate on the resolution, even though it ultimately passed. Were the rules followed? Um, the rules are always fo like followed. The trick is that the establishment knows how to use the rules to its advantage. So they'll have chairs that have like are pretty embedded in the party. They know what the outcome that they want. And this is my like this is my take on it, and I think a lot of people believe that. And they'll start at certain mics. They like people will stack the mics. Um, and like deploy different strategies of who's speaking or like sub people into their spots. And you spend the entire convention just like on edge for this thing, uh, for like these sorts of battles. Um, and I found it really troubling, um, especially as someone, as a, a person 
maybe not directly, but as a Palestinian person, more or less directly a mem like affected as a member of the party, feeling like I was shut out. And I think the worst part was when I did try to ask to speak on the resolution, even though debate was being hastily moved along, and it turned out that they had a Palestinian woman chairing that section, and of course she decided to say, well, you know, like to use that card midway through chairing to kind of like silence debate. So it was just like very shady, the whole thing was like very uncomfortable. I cried into my kafia all weekend. It was not fun. <laughs> um, but I think, anyway, I guess the point I'm raising and bringing this up and other things that flowed like from that is democratization of, of political parties and what that looks like. And I think there's a lot, like, there's a huge sense um, from certainly people on the left that there's a need for that to change. And what does it mean for our politics? Is it people who are in the leader's office going out and finding out what people want, or is it people participating through the party to make their voices heard? And also, like, are these structures harmful to racialized people or people w or with marginalized views or voices? Like, having to wake, I mean, I didn't sleep all weekend. I lined up in those lines. I lined up, I queued up at the mic. For, like, for, like, a completely inaccessible setup, it, like, harmful for anyone with disabilities harmful for me i was like drugged all weekend because i had a constant migraine like couldn't eat because i couldn't go to the bathroom because i was queuing up in the line um so and like are like are you know like stuff like that and then you're expected to like bear your heart out on the convention floor on cpac to get any like to be heard or be seen as legitimate and i think like it's super easy for white people to line up in these lines and say their opinion about a policy point but, you know, it's very different than to expect, like, folks who are directly impacted or have, or maybe even triggered by what's being discussed, like, take a cue and, like, sp like speak and be yelled over just for people to call points of privilege and order over top of them all weekend. And that experience is, just, like, it's very prohibitive to people who are older, who are disabled, yeah. who can't you know, stand around and wait around and not afford to, like, eat or drink for long periods of time because they can't. Well, you're and, and, like, they have a rotating, like, a roving mic that comes to you if you can't physically be at the mics. But even to do that, like, you're still on edge. You can't, like, leave their, like, everything is super tense. And they gave 30-minute windows for policy debates on top of all of that. And you're trying to get through so many pressing things. And the part, and the, and the, resolutions that the party ultimately usually ends up passing are the tepid ones that everybody already agrees with. And then they pat themselves on the back and say, well, we passed this and that resolution. This is exactly what, well, one of the reasons I don't do political parties. Yeah. And, and I, I understand, and this is not me, you know, saying that nobody should or anything like that. This, the NDP, I, I, the conventions, the, the procedures, the protocols will always favor the establishment and those high up in the party, which to me is counterproductive to whatever policy you're trying to discuss, especially for l more left-leaning parties. Um, so I just don't trust that that the people who need to be heard from are being heard from. Yep. Absolutely. You know what? Like, first of all, this sounds massively inefficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which would drive me mental. Like, I would 
lose my mind over this because and like, where's the enjoyment are you not supposed to enjoy yourself well, but at that's these the thing, parties like, some people go and enjoy themselves at convention but those of us who worked on that resolution like I mean, there were other Palestinian... Like, the nice thing was I met a lot of great activists who I think motivated me more than I, like, felt like I needed to up until that point because I was pretty disenchanted. But I met a lot of Palestinian NDP members who, like, yay, we exist, and that was really nice, but, like, who left, like, in tears and didn't go to the social that Jagmeet DJed. And I didn't go to that social. Or just, like, uh, like, we opted out of all the social things because we were, like, so affected by this carrying on and like no one ever turned to be like let's take a mo like we know that this is a sensitive issues or like we know that some of the things we're talking about today may be triggering or whatever but you're right Aaron in that block we didn't do any like we maybe passed two motions in that 30 minute window and nothing else why not give people the opportunity like okay you said before I think to me that the resolution had to be posted in advance and so give people, whoever's registered for the convention, the opportunity to go online to vote ranked ballot for what things should be spoken about first. And yeah. then they can organize offline in their own time, which is not an inconvenience yeah. to everyone else who are spending their entire weekend at a convention that they had to pay for. So here's the second part of that story, totally on point with that. That was the other resolution that we were trying to push. And we succeeded. But all the same tactics were used to prevent it. So the new like ev like every like people pulling out saying this like just every trick so in the they're, book they're to window dressing. It. Um, but we did win on this democratizing the prioritization piece. Good. And everyone was but like everyone involved close to the party fought it tooth and nail. How, it's inaccessible. Not everyone in Canada has high speed internet. Well, not everybody in Canada can come to fucking NDP convention. That's exactly. Like, no, not everyone's paying. One, first of all, has a membership to, to yeah. be able to attend. Two, is paying for travel to attend the conference yeah. or yeah. The, the convention. Yeah. yeah. No, it's extremely prohibitive. It, it's, it, it's a debate among, you know, big unions that are affiliated and send delegates is the largest probably contingency of people. Partisans from riding associations who are, de who are quite partisan um, in their nature and very close to the establishment. And some ridings are more... Um, distant and critical than others but like that's that's a very different but it's not grassroots activists and they, like they go and we're there but like it, the numbers are definitely skewed but you know what else, what else you do you you give you can also if people don't have internet and that's a concern you send out each person registered a party member this little registration number and you can either mail them yeah. a physical thing where which they have to write that letter that number on or yeah. have them log into yeah. the website with which that is, yeah. so everyone gets one say and not yeah. 18 well, that's it, and that's what they ultimately did for the leadership this year um, or last year, and that and people fought that tooth and nail. But like, I think it's way more effective. Um, but it's just interesting that these organizations, which ultimately dictate how our election, like what conversations happen at election, like I don't, I, like, there's a place for partisan politics. There's a huge role that parties play, um, but they're so focused on their own self-preservation, and it comes at a cost of like actually practicing their politics or meaningfully engaging the people that they should be engaging with. You're, you're giving me all the reasons why I, know. I, it's, it's I really I should stay with it. where I, I am. I know. Because here's the thing. If you, if you are being so influenced by unions, how much of this country is not unionized? Well, right? ideally we'll unionize, er, unionize everyone, but you're right. It is a, it, it's a so skewed So in other words, yeah. you have a skewed perspective of labor 
because you are still playing by the rule, which I saw a lot in last year's convention. Mm-hmm. I was like, because I, I actually watched it. I was, I, I remember thinking, this is very labor heavy. What do they have to say about people in precarious work? Yeah, I mean, I mean, very take union perspective on those issues. But you're right; it's not like speaking from but look actual many, precarious workers. But yeah. but look how how many people in Canada are still in unions. Mm-hmm. So their policy is being informed by an old model of labor. Mm-hmm. So now I'm like, I don't even trust their labor policies now, and that's the thing. And maybe that's part of the reason they're so disconnected, because they are disconnected from a lot of Canadians. But it's about keep like making it meaningful. Like it's not enough to like drive up membership or have the numbers or give people a lower, a reduced rate because there is a reduced rate for attending for people who are lower income. But if you show up and you like and you're also you're not fed, you have to go like do all these things yourself. You're like, and and if you want to debate anything, you know that's remotely personal to you, you're fight. You feel like you're fighting for your life. So then, why the ha- so why do they expect? How do they expect to keep those new members I, I if they don't have a voice? Yeah, like yeah, this is sure, not exactly. rocket science. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, so I, I just think I, I don't know. I don't really trust political parties in general. Mm-hmm. I I don't trust politicians. <laughs> I just I I really just I'm just like well no wonder you're you're third and a distant third. Sure. The the idea we were is close second once. <laughs> yeah, and that's a victory. No, <laughs> that's okay. How, yeah, that's like, how they see it. I know. And so that's why, and that's, that's a problem. Why, that's why they're so afraid of any bold ideas. They're afraid of bold ideas. They're fucking trailing. Like, uh, like, you know, go big or go home. Yeah, this is the time for bold ideas. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah, you're letting the liberals, not you, obviously, Amy. But you're letting very personally. You're, you're letting the liberals fucking outflank you on the left. How the fuck did you let that happen? Yeah. I still don't understand how that happened. I know it's Thomas Mulcair, yeah. but I, at good the riddance. yeah, like good riddance is right because I'm sorry. He he's another one who who decided to not to show up for work for a couple of days, and everybody was just like, oh, but he's suffering because he lost. Fuck him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so if there was, if, if that were a single mother who didn't show up for work because she got fucking sexually harassed, she would still have to be there to keep her job. So don't give me that. You know what? This is like the NDP is really irking me right now. Well, and, yeah. and, and uh, it's because I expect more from them. That's right. And they're little whingy, little, little scaredy cats when they're losing anyway. They have nothing to lose. I mean, they've watch, already lost again, Quebec. Watch Jagmeet's speech. I think it's really like I you've think, been saying this I this whole episode. I, I no, no. I mean, speech. watch it. I think it's pointing to the right direction. But I, do, but, I think, but I think, bold. but I think he needs to know that you win elections based on volunteers and uh, like ground game and the investment of people who are in these communities. And if they show up to your convention and they feel like they're being shot all over. Engagement is everything. The other big win from the weekend was the free tuition resolution, which also was buried in the prioritization, and people fought really hard to have that debated. I and saw again, that on Twitter. And again, that was a yeah. huge struggle. That wasn't because the party wanted it to happen. People fought for that shit. So my rent and receipts this week is about the NCAA and how they say that student-athletes shouldn't be paid... So it's almost March Madness, and 
college athletes in the United States, uh, particularly those who play for really, really big football and basketball programs, generate millions and in some instances billions of dollars for these universities, uh, the brands and television networks. In 2015, the top programs made a combined $9.1 billion. Um, so for March Madness, the NCAA just signed an $8.8 billion deal with CBS just to air college basketball. Okay, wait a minute. Can I, can I, can I break and just say, so we, so we spent all that money to send Trudeau to India for seven days and he only came up with $1 billion? Yet the NCAA can negotiate an $8.8 billion con. You're right. That $1 billion is petty. Petty. Peanuts. 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 Crumbs from the table. Yeah. Okay. With a population of over a billion people in that country. Right. So it's basically a buck each. Okay. The fuck out of here. Anyway, sorry. Go on. Um, (laughs) So uh, an athlete, Lawrence Livers filed a lawsuit against the NCAA asserting that scholarship students who play sports are employees of the university and deserve to be paid. The Livers case argues that student athletes who get scholarships should be at least paid as work-study students for the time they put in. At the root of their legal argument, the NCAA is relying on one particular case for why NCAA athletes should not receive pay. Is it slavery? This case... (laughs) is Vanskyke v. Peters. So that all sounds, you know, on the face of it, you know, reasonable. Not to me it doesn't. Except uh, Daniel Vanskyke was a prisoner at at Stateville Correctional Center in Joliet, Illinois, and Howard Peters was the director of the State Department of Corrections. In 1992, Vanskyke and his attorneys argued that a prisoner... As a prisoner, he should be paid the federal minimum wage for his work. The court, in its decision, cited the 13th Amendment and rejected the claim. What's the 13th Amendment? The 13th Amendment is commonly hailed as the law that finally ended slavery in America. Oh! On it! (laughs) But the amendment has an important carve-out. It kept involuntary service legal for those who have been convicted of a crime. It says, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. In that phrase, except as punishment for crime, which allows American prisoners to force their inmates, sorry, forces, which allows American prisons to force their inmates to do whatever work they want, or need them to do. Livers' lawyers filed a motion to dismiss and are arguing that the precedent was mistaken for applying the 13th Amendment ex- exception for unpaid prison labor in a case dealing with non-prisoners. <laughs> um, quote, Defense counsel's insistence, insistence that Vance Kike be applied here is not only legally frivolous, but also deeply offensive to all scholarship athletes and particularly to African-Americans, Livers' rebuttal to the NCAA motion says, quote, comparing athletes to prisoners is contemptible. Well, they're mostly black, aren't they? Exactly. Okay. So 
we talked about re media representation. We talked about, um, you know, I brought up slavery a couple of times. I'm so on it. I was just like, this sounds like slavery. Oh, look what it is. Mm -hmm. um, this is crazy. So shockingly that, it, that you know, a white institution, very is, white institution, a very white institution is making money off the backs of unpaid labor. Forced, well, coerced unpaid labor. I wouldn't say forced, correct, but coerced. Yes, um, because how much of a of an education do these guys and girls really get? It's it, honestly, it's generally very poor unless you're at like an Ivy League, you know. Uh, college, but in that case, then the sports and generally aren't as strong. So there's like a there's a trade off. So the the more successful your your school is at athletics, the more the more suspect the education is for those athletes. And those things inform students' decisions to leave early or to enter a draft early. Uh, in basketball, so for example, if you're like you know, Allen Iverson, who, yeah. who, who left Georgetown, I think, after the second year and got, I, I know somebody's going to correct me if I'm wrong, so I'm cool with that. I think it was the second year. Um, and, you know, to get drafted in the NBA, I'm pretty sure that some of those students are like, wait a minute, I'm not making any money off of this. Yeah. Um, it's about time I get paid. Yeah, it's just not a good business model. <laughs> it's not a good business model at all. It's awful. Yeah, and you'd think you'd want people to also be there and be happy. And like, and it, it'll probably limits the talent pool in general, right? Like, that's probably the biggest thing. Like, but it's all about the TV rights. But now, if, you're not, if you're not getting the best players necessarily, then who cares what, you're airing, what games are airing on TV? What do you mean? Yeah. Well, I feel like some people wouldn't wouldn't play or get to that level. So it or depends it would on the encourage, sport. Yeah, fair enough. Fair it does enough. depend on yeah. the sport. So like yeah. baseball, you don't have to go to college. Right. But basketball, I think you have to have one year. Two. Two years. Mm -hmm. And then football. I'm football, usually, like clear. usually athletes stay yeah. for football. Like I don't. I think that's, that's like a maturity level in their body too. Yes. Yes. And, you know various accolades like a Heisman Trophy and stuff like yes. that is usually given to more seniors. Yeah. So um Right. So you say and to be competitive in that pool. Right. Yeah. It's 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 a it, it let's put it this way. If you're competitive in that pool, then now I don't know that I don't I've never studied the economics of of these sports. So I yeah. I'm a little bit blind here. But um if you because if if you are a top player and you're in league for the Heisman or for or for whatever, then um, it's 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 more beneficial that you stay mm. and develop. Yeah, and you get um, a bigger payoff at the end. You get a bigger you payoff. Well. Yeah. yeah. Whereas basketball, you don't need that as mm -hmm. much. Is my guess. Anybody who's out yeah. there who knows this better who can fill in on the economics of this. I would love to hear from you. Um, but yeah, but mm -hmm. college athletes, so, like, there's an NCAA 
uh, I don't know if it's a, I think it's a basketball video game. It might be football. I don't know. Obviously, I don't play video games. Um, but there's, like, they use the likeness of these athletes, and th- the students don't get the royalty. That, that is actually? awful. Yeah. That is That's awful. Nice. That is actually, like, oh, my gosh, that is Awful. Like that's like it's one thing to I, not get the royalties from like having your name on the back of a jersey that someone in the stands is wearing, but to literally use your likeness yeah. is next level. They should yeah. be sued. This is overdue. Yeah. To be honest, yeah. Yeah. this yeah. is a conversation that has been going on for a long time, um, probably for about twenty, thirty years. Well, and, and the years. likening to like sir, like the, the inst- like I don't know how you get to the imprisonment connection or like that carve out, but. It's work. Like, essentially, it's work. Someone is making money off of it. There's no way this should be an exception to waged labor. This Especially with your likeness being yeah. on a video game. Well, that's, you're diff- not that's different. That's a whole other set of rights that you have. That's through. ridiculous. Yeah. There's no way that the school... And to be honest, have you well, seen Well, God the knows what you've signed away to. You probably have signed away to representations of your likeness. Of course. But of course. I mean, that's the problem with not... With, with this whole relationship and power dynamic is that, and that's probably, that's the thing they're most afraid of. They don't want them to unionize or asso- create associations the way they do in the professional leagues. And then suddenly you have all these other rights so and entitlements. They've tried, thought about unionizing, but also like for a lot of these poor students, like poor black men, this is the only way that they get out of their neighborhoods, you know, is going, being good at a sport and, going to college and getting an education oh yeah so like they kind of are have their hands tied because that's how do they how they that's can lift why themselves this is, out of poverty but that's why the system is so exploitative yep. right so i mean this is this is labor exploitation racial exploitation i mean these these and these are institutions that will charge you thirty thousand a year to go to that's mm. the other thing where the fuck is this money going like well, that that's it, yeah. You know, what is the value of that? Wh- <laughs> that where the where is this money going? You're just taking a couple of basic classes just to get by and say you're enrolled. It's also such a but no. Workaround. Where is the money going? Well, that's because uh, as, as salaries uh, of like of the coaches, like it co- can't be all salaries. A, no, but like a top football coach is making w- well into the seven figures. Yeah, that's upsetting. It's obscene that, that they're ma- that a coach could make that on the and the players make, make nothing. nothing. Yep, that's exploitation. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Erica, what do you got for us this week? I have a f- wow. I am loving GQ lately. Um, they've really cleaned up their act ever since that you know Richard Spencer um, centerfold. Thing. I forgot they did that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they did. I don't know if it was a centerfold, but yes. Yeah, sure. Well, whatever. <laughs> Ew! Ooh, I just got the. Oh, I just got same the same degree of glorification. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the and angel is a centerfold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so ever since then, GQ has been teen voguing it up because I guess they heard the backlash and were like, Ugh. yeah, yeah. So. Unlike the New York Times, they seem to have learned their lesson. So, my rent and receipts is called the importance of rudeness. Now, in the so let me set it up. In I can't tell you how many times 
I have been tone policed by some white person who doesn't like the way I say things because it's not nice enough and to tone it down. So just anytime somebody tells you to tone it down, just remember this is it. Okay. So this is how this, the GQ article goes. In his column for the New York Times, David Brooks gave a hot take on the students' protests after the Florida school shooting that happened on Valentine's Day this year. It goes something like this. <clears throat> Quote, So if you want to stop school shootings, it's not enough just to vent and march. It's necessary to let the people from Red America lead the way and to show respect to gun owners at all points. There has to be trust and respect first. Then we can strike a compromise on guns as guns and not some sacred cross in the culture war. End quote. So that was David Brooks. I really like your voice. <laughs> Thank you. Because it's my Andrew Coyne voice. Um, who, is, who, who is a legendary tone policer. Mm. As is Jonathan Kay. Ooh, white man. Shocking. Anyway. The article goes on to say, we live in rude times. Quote, the president is a pig. His underlings are nothing but a bunch of opportunists and enablers. And the rest of the GOP is staffed by a wide range of scum from camera-friendly establishment monsters like Paul Ryan. None of these people deserve civility. In fact, civility only serves to enable them. But this is not the time to calm down. Kids are fucking dead. Their parents are rightfully and loudly pissed about it. David Brooks has no right to tell people who are mad as hell to stop being mad as hell. He can afford to be calm and collected because he is so wealthy and sequestered that nothing, can truly, nothing truly awful can happen to him. His civility is a luxury. Mm. He only wants to talk about this shit in civilized terms because he lives a civilized life. His words are those of a man whose foremost experiences in life happen, have happened inside his own rectum. <laughs> he deserves to have his ass dragged every time someone hits publish on his behalf. Look at the Brooks passage again. He doesn't even want these kids to protest. Protesting is both legal and highly American, and yet Brooks feel, fears the distressed gun nuts might feel from that. This man doesn't really want civility. He wants comfort. He wants people to be polite so that they can thus be easily ignored. And he would like what is relatively simple, because ban guns so kids don't die, to be laundered and defanged through the genteel language of the discourse. This way, nothing really happens. Gun control remains just an idea worthy of discussion, and the lawmakers who are paid off by the NRA to be professionally negligent are never frightened into finally taking action, end quote. 
this is fucking Canada right here. Yeah. This is what happened to the Me Too movement in this country, like I said last week, is that now we're all supposed to be civilized and talk in nice language so that we don't really say anything and so that nothing really happens and then we're tone police the fuck out of our argument and I'm sick of it. In fact, I love this article. It sounds like I wrote it. <laughs> like the way it was written, it was so, I don't give a fuck, I've had enough and I'm fucking angry. And we should all be fucking angry. Anger has its place. Not to say that we should be rude in real life and say, bitch, get out of the way. I'm walking here. But at the same <laughs> time, there is a place to be rude and Absolutely. to be uncivil. And it reminds me of when Black Lives Matter sat down and all they did was stop a parade and the vitriol and the death threats that came just from protests, which is our fucking right, yeah. is just, it, 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 it makes me disgusted. It disgusts me. I'm disgusted. Okay. No, I, I love that piece. Um, I really rung true for me. I definitely have felt tone police. I felt like the respectability politics really at play um, partially last weekend at, at a like your convention. convention yeah. Um, there was a lot of that and like you know we had poster like we were postering and had like free Ahatamini posters um, like up behind different speakers and like you know we were doing you know our fists in the air and like but totally peaceful protests and you could see the discomfort on people's faces and folks coming up to us and being like you know patronizingly like being like well if you guys want to be effective and win your fight next time you know call me i'll help you lobby and strategize oh you got the hillary clinton speech yeah yeah, yeah. and it's just like it's no, like bitch like, you lost you, you know <laughs> first of all we're forcing you to have this discussion you never wanted to have it's making you uncomfortable we've won because it's making you uncomfortable we've brought the fight to you we don't need to win on this like other policy piece frankly like i think this disruption is part of it um, and if you can't reckon with protests, then you're not really progressive. You're not, you're not progressive. You're not saying anything. Yeah. And you're not being effective. Because this is the thing, too. Shutting down discussion, the quest for civility, is always, always made by people in the establishment who are benefiting from mm -hmm. the status quo. And they're there to shut you down so that you don't threaten their livelihood or their reputation. But it's all yeah, about them. For sure. And I want to talk, nothing to do I wanna talk about these Florida kids. Fuck. Like, Yay. oh, my God. Amazing. I love them. The, it's 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 really cool to see. Um, it's again. I mean, I, like we all in this room know this is not the first time that young people have been at the forefront. It's just the first time people are paying attention, which mm -hmm. is frustrating. Because they're white kids. Because they're white kids. Okay. And that's really, really frustrating. But doesn't take away from the power of what they're nope. doing. And it's, it's I'm here for it. Oh, I'm totally here for it. And um, and I love how shaken people are. Like everybody's so fucking shook. It's awesome. You know, like um, did you I, what would their parents say? I, what, I know. Where are these you know what? kids? It's like <laughs> their parents should be fucking proud of them. Totally, because they have found something that they are passionate about in the wake of a horrific incident. I'd just be happy my kid was fucking alive. First of all, yes, and they should be proud that they have raised such strong and eloquent and mature children. Hearing those speeches, like, moved to tears, and I, I couldn't even, I couldn't string words together like that. That no. these people are able, these kids are able to do under such trauma. 
which yeah. I don't think people are really appreciating. Like they're I going through right, right yeah. now. It's yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and to to carry on this way is, is ama- like it's amazing. I feel empowered. They just, like, effectively to them. dragged Marco Rubio. Oh, so good. And I was so here for it because uh. I can't stand Marco. Honestly, if there's any bigger weak individual with no integrity who's a fucking big <laughs> hypocrite it's marco rubio what a highlight of the week i know i was like bravo if you so didn't watch the cnn debate on uh guns in america you should go google it find some clips these kids and their parents schooled him and i think they taught a l- us a lot about how we kind of need to f- reframe and rethink about our own activism and mm-hmm. how we challenge authority because Ooh, they carry on with that. They didn't take his talking points as an actual response. They didn't take his pivots. They said, no, this is my question. Either answer it mm-hmm. or you're complicit. Mm-hmm. And they weren't taking him for an answer and they called them out on it. And it was awesome. And I think that we, but Need that's a reminder the way you as to how to do it. Frame the debate. A lot of times, the debates, especially like this is, this is where I see a difference in Canada and the U.S. And because of their, like the U.S. has always had conflict. It's always had rebellion. It was born out of rebellion. Canada was born out of good governance. Mm. So, <laughs> so the point is, is that even the like. The activism in Canada is genteel in order to, um, in, except for Black Lives Matter, I will say that. And, and, yeah, and a it. lot of indigenous activism, yeah. too, that's happening, which is warming my heart. Yeah. Because I think, yeah, the they are really the ones who are saying, Black Lives Matter, all these indigenous protests, they are the ones who are saying, you know what, fuck you. We're not taking your answer. And they are, they're treated by media like they're scum. Mm-hmm. Well, when, when Brooks is talking about civility... I hate David Brooks. Oh, he's, I've he's always hated trash. him. Um, but the idea of civility meaning that you have to accept someone's point of debate and the idea of debate as being this, like, there's, there's always two sides to a discussion or that there is always two perspectives and they're both equally valid, like... I think that comes from those the pa- like power structures wanting to mm-hmm. like and en- like reinforce themselves and yeah to your point Aaron it's like th- what's radical about this is that no there is no two sides to gun violence like fuck you for making for there's either violence or no th- violence there's yeah and there is no validity to the stand that you know you should be taking money from the NRA and then pushing their legislation forward in terms of like your political accountability. When, when Marco Rubio was like, "No, the NRA buys into my agenda," I loved it. Oh my god, I what loved a it. I loved Who's it because everybody, nonsense? everybody knew at that point that he was full of shit. Yeah. I loved it. They exposed him as being full of shit. I do want to take this to like kind of a more micro level, a more okay. Um, so I think that I hate the idea of civility. I think that there is an entirely appropriate time for incivility and rudeness. And I think that to be a good ally, sometimes you gotta, you gotta ruffle some feathers. You gotta, why is ruffling feathers? Well, that's the thing. You gotta make people uncomfortable and that is going to be mean being rude. And it's going to mean calling people out and you can don't have to be a 
dick about it. You can be polite, but you still have to challenge people. And I think that people view civility as not challenging people. Right. When there is an appropriate way to challenge people that is still polite and still respectable. But sometimes the time when people are lying in your face, that politeness goes out the window. Sure, but the friend told me, was telling me an anecdote last night that he was like, I got to be a feminist buzzkill for the first time. He's like, and it was uncomfortable for me because it was my first time, but it made everyone else around me very uncomfortable. I was able to convince one person of my point. The other people, I don't know, and I may have alienated that group of people. I'm like, well, then they weren't your friends in the first place. Yeah. And you got that one person, so. Yeah, he's like, I got one person. Off. And he's like, I feel good about it. He's like, I so can't wait, wait to a minute. do it again. So, yeah. so, so wait a minute. Can you give me more, can you give us more context? He, they were having a discussion and. What was the topic? I don't know what they were talking about, okay. but there was a man in the group who said something like, oh, um, oh, I felt like such a pussy or don't be such a pussy or whatever. And my friend was like, hey, wait a sec. That's not... Oh, if you lost friends over telling someone not to use that word in that way, yeah. then good fucking the, 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 No, I'm like, the, how the, fragile the guy, is the... is the, the other guy was like, well, I'm using the word ironically. First of all, I don't know how you use the word ironically. I don't know what context. you... I, I don't if you're think a you woman, you could use it ironically because that would be like a funny, weird subversion of yeah. the way it was used. But if you're a man who is clearly like using yeah. it in the context... Of masculinity. People use the word, uh, like use the idea of irony to mask their fucking shady ass behavior. They also don't know what irony means. I know. I was like, that's not... That's not, not irony. irony. No. Um, not even the, so the song ironic is yeah. irony. No. <laughs> Well, like, that's been well documented. Yeah. So, yeah. like, it's not iron. It's anyway. Go on. But then, go yeah, on. that's that's what happened. He was like, actually, that's you shouldn't talk like that for reasons, whatever. And so he's like, you know what? I'm gonna do this again. Good. Yeah. It's nice to cle- do some spring cleaning on some motherfuckers. I'll tell you that. Mm. I love that word, motherfucker. Mm-hmm. I really it, do. It I love, really trips off the. Tongue. I know. It just. It's just like. It's just like, you know, with your arms crossed, people know you're here for business. <laughs> so fuck that. Like, I'm just tired of, you know what? And I, then we tone police ourselves. I'm beginning to see my own sort of self-tone policing. And I'm like, ooh, this is not good. This is not good. Mostly when people see me live. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh. Uh, you know? <laughs> but I'm, but like, I'm noticing it because... I just don't like it about myself mm. that no, I'm I don't doing either. And this. then I watch awesome folks who don't do that and won't engage in that shit. And I'm like, oh, fuck, that's what I think. But why don't I sound like that? But maybe you do. Like, the other thing, too, like, I cannot stand older white people Fuck, And, you know, older black people tone policing mm. me and in t- engaging in the, respect, the respectability politics. I'm like, you should know better. And you know what? Step aside. If this, is, if this is too much for you, then you step aside. Because the way you've been doing it hasn't worked. How has civility worked so far? Yeah. Has it? Depends who you're asking. Has it? Yeah. We still have these issues, yeah. and, and people are still shocked when we talk about them. So how has that worked out? But some people are comfortable. They are personally comfortable. Wow. If it's all about their comfort, then who am I to say anything? Fuck it. Yeah. 
worry about being uncomfortable. That's how change happens. Exactly. What does and I'm going to I'm going to ref- this MLK quote about the white moderate being the chief obstacle to justice mm-hmm. is exactly what this is. Mm-hmm. They would rather have an uh, uh, a sort of they'd rather be comfortable than have justice. And that's the pro- and that's David Brooks. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's my rent and receipts. <laughs> So, uh, misogynist of the week, who do we have? So, for misogynist of the week, I thought that we would get a little general here. Okay. Um, I think we've all had kind of stories this week that um, relate to, well, basically, fragile masculinity and the fragile modern expectation of what masculinity is. Um, there was a wonderful op-ed in the New York Times from Michael Ian Black about uh, boys and violence in America and how, you know, he says, quote, too many boys are trapped in the same suffocating, outdated model of masculinity where manhood is measured in strength, where there is no way to be vulnerable without being emasculated, where manliness is about having power over others. They are trapped, and they don't even have the language to talk about how they feel about being trapped because the language that exists to discuss the full range of human emotion is still viewed as sensitive and feminine. And Erica, I think you this week kind of experienced some of this fragile, masculine (laughs) sentiment on the Internet. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I had a tweet that went viral. And basically, <laughs> I don't even have to look hard for this tweet because it's still being like commented on. So somebody had had tweeted, and uh, some rando had tweeted that um, 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 Michael B. Jordan, so from Black Panther, mm-hmm. who started out in The Wire. Okay, um, shout out to The Wire. Um, Michael B. Jordan is a five foot nine inch adult man that loves anime and lives with his parents. He responded and he said, first of all, I'm six feet and they live with me. Men are really sensitive about this height thing. I got so many responses about it's women's fault. Height and men is one of those first indicators of so-called masculinity, of strength, of protection, of all of these things that we put to men. And the height thing, when men are short, er, <laughs> short, it seems to be, they f- it seems to me like they feel like it's been taken away from them, that part of their manhood has been taken away from them. So that's my piece in this. I think to be fair, like, th- it's all part of the misogyny that we've all internalized. Yes. And like, they're feeling that that they're miss, like not missing out on something or their feeling of like having to experience these like weird interactions with people based on uh, this aspect of their appearance is real and i think like actually damaging but the blame is not it's on the structure of misogyny it's not that's on right the individuals who guys my voice held up the whole time Woo woo. Um, anyway till next time bye bye, bye. 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 bye.